The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage today is the book of Daniel. It's chapter 1. Please stand up as we read this together. Daniel chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. You may be seated. If you're four years old to second grade, you're released to the herd. Is that me or you? I'm standing very still. You're released to the herd. Bonnie and Tara will take you. So four years old to the second grade, you are released. Hello. Okay. There we go. All right. Hey, Daniel. All right. New sermon series. Things blow up. It's all right. It's good. Uh, So here we are, Daniel chapter 1. And what we're going to do this morning is uh, start off a new sermon series. And so um, I've given honor where honor is due downstairs this morning, but Miss Emily Barnett is the one who's created that right there. And so she's just good at what she does. Where is she at? She's gone. She's out there, I think, with her, her little one. And so 
um, man, we've got some really awesome um, men and women who can create things very, very well. And so we want to celebrate that here. Our God is a God of creation, and it's good and right for us to use the way God has created us to image him in that way. And so I'm just thankful for those kinds of gifts that we have um, in, our, in our presence here at Delta. So here's what we're going to do. We're starting a new sermon series, Dan, the book of Daniel. Um, We're coming out of the Jesus and politics series, and what we're going to do is just turn to Daniel and study his life. We're going to take um, several weeks to work through the full book of the book of Daniel. Um, For some of us, we've read Daniel. For some of us, we haven't. For some of us, we've read um, bits and pieces of Daniel, maybe the first six chapters of his book. Um, His book and the first six chapters talk about different stories of Daniel and the way he interprets dreams and interactions with Nebuchadnezzar and his three friends in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. These kinds of stories, those are very familiar to us. But in the last half of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, what we have are um, some pretty crazy dreams, pretty crazy visions, um, chapters that we tend to steer away from. But We're not going to do that. We're going to work our way through these chapters here um, as a church, studying the full counsel of the Word of God. And so what we're going to do this morning is turn our attention first to Daniel chapter 1. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started with what God has to teach us this morning from this chapter. God, you are the sovereign God who guides his people. And this morning, as we turn our attention to Daniel chapter 1, my prayer is that you would magnify your name. You're the Lord who is sovereign. You're the Lord who guides. You're the Lord who is in control of all things, no matter if we are in a place that's very familiar and comfortable to us or whether we find ourselves in a place of exile, far from home, in Babylon, in a world that is directly opposed to you. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would even further the building of your church, that you would further the spread of your kingdom in the hearts of the men and women here who love Jesus Christ. Help us to see Jesus from this text, Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. It was in 1964 that Bob Dylan um, took his guitar in hand, and he reminded us in a song that the times, they are a-changing. Now, whether or not Bob Dylan knew just how prophetic those words would be, I would argue that they perfectly describe the day and age that you and I find ourselves in in regard to just the great shift of the worldview that many people are going through and even just through the great um, and rapid and dramatic cultural change that is going on um, in our country specifically in the most Recent of decades, our country is just shifting at lightning speed, at breakneck speed away from the things of God, where at one time it may have seemed like there was a favorable cultural breeze blowing across our land toward the things of God. Now, what it feels like and what is true in many instances is instead of just that cool cultural breeze blowing across the land, what it What we have is this stiff cultural headwind, which is determined to push back and knock over anything that reflects the things of God. And for many of us, we keenly feel the weight of this cultural shift. As I have conversations with you and have conversations with others, and I see brothers and sisters in Christ talking online and just conversations with other pastors, just that shift away from the things of God to 
being very adamantly opposed to the things of God, the people of God are feeling that very deeply, feeling that very keenly in their heart, in their mind, wondering what will the days ahead hold for us. God and the things of Christ, they're just simply no longer welcome in the public square. God's word on marriage, family, and sexuality, they're found to be laughable in conversation with your friends, neighbors, or coworkers. Politics, higher education, the media, all have relegated the teachings of Christ in some way is intolerable. For the longest of time, it was, it's good for you to believe this. Just don't go spreading it around, and our culture is now even shifting to the point where it's like we don't even want you to be believing this or practicing on this on your, on your own, no matter if you go out into the public square with it or not. It's just simply become intolerable to think and act like a Christian. But in the midst of it all, what I really believe God is doing and the way our culture, our worldview, the thinking of our country is shifting so rapidly, so quickly from things that were just moderately toward God to just very opposed to the things of God, I really believe God is doing a great work in His church. I really believe that He is awakening His chosen people to the reality of what it looks like for you and for me to live as exiles here in this world. Now, God's people are a people acquainted with exile and suffering. You read this in the New Testament, you read this in the Old Testament. My hope is that you will be reading the book of Daniel along with us, that in the weeks to come, we're basically just going to be working through a chapter a Sunday, and that you would take the time to stick your nose into God's Word and see what He has to say so it's not falling on your ears freshly on Sunday morning. And if you just want to couple the New Testament book of Daniel, basically, is First Peter. Or First Peter says a lot of the same things that we're going to run into and talk about in the book of Daniel. So if you're a woman and you want to go to the women's study, it's going to be a great way for you to get a double dose of what God teaches us about what it means to be strangers, sojourners, exiles here in this world because we are citizens of heaven, not just merely citizens here on earth. For Christians, we are exiles. And we are exiles in the sense that this world is not our final home. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we are citizens in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we are called sojourners and exiles in this world, which means that we are often familiar with suffering and persecution. That's what 1 Peter talks a lot about. And even when we turn to the Old Testament, we see the same reality over and again. In the book of Daniel, as we roll into the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, what we find is that some of God's people have been exiled from their country, from their city, Jerusalem, to another country, to another city, over into Babylon. And as a result of this drastic change, they are experiencing suffering. They experienced suffering as they remembered Jerusalem and the temple where God dwelt. They suffered as they were forced to work for the nation which oppressed them. And they suffered as they found themselves in situations where the rulers and the kings and the kingdoms and the governors and the magistrates and everywhere they went in their culture, everything was calling them and pressing them to compromise their faith in God. All aspects and avenues of life in Babylon were anti-God, from its rulers to its regulations. 
And one question that is often raised by God's people, whether it was the Israelites in the Old Testament experiencing physical exile, being uprooted out of their native country and hauled into a new kingdom with a new ruler that was opposed to everything they knew, or whether it's you and me just experiencing the exile of recognizing that this world is not our home, God's people always seem to find themselves in this type of circumstance asking the question of how. How? How should I, how should you, how should we as God's people live as strangers and exiles in a world that is not my home? How do I do this? How can I remain faithful when I find myself living in Babylon, so to speak? How do I find comfort in times like these when everything seems to be opposed to the ways of God? And God's answer, in part, is look to the book of Daniel. Now, ultimately, the message of Daniel is that God is all-powerful, and he is very much in control of all things in spite of the current circumstances that you find yourself in. See, Daniel is a book which beckons us to see that no matter the current situation that you find yourself in, no matter the circumstances, one truth will always remain, and it is this truth. The Lord God reigns, and no one is trumping him. No one is above him. He's the pinnacle. He's the point. He's the tippy top. He's not seeking counsel from someone else. He is the giver of all counsel. He's the giver of all wisdom. He is ruling and reigning in control of all things. He alone is the sovereign Lord. And so as we roll into Daniel chapter 1, the narrator begins by magnifying this truth. Daniel chapter 1 is very much the prologue to the book of Daniel. There's a lot of elements from Daniel chapter 1 that become setups for what the rest of the book is going to unpack and explain. And as we roll into Daniel chapter 1, the truth that the Lord reigns is going to be the thing that the narrator is going to magnify. And from this chapter, what we're going to see is that the sovereign Lord who guided Daniel and his faithful friends while they're in Babylon to positions of power in Babylon, this sovereign Lord is the exact same Lord who guides his faithful people here in this world, guides people like you and guides people like me. And so as we roll into Daniel chapter 1, the story begins in verse 1 where God's people are being exiled to Babylon. So in your copy of Scripture, look at verse 1 and verse 2. It begins, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, notice that as Daniel 1 begins, it looks as though the God of Israel has been beaten by the gods of Babylon. The year is 605 B.C., and Jerusalem has been besieged by the Babylonians. Jehoiakim has been overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar, and some of the vessels of the house of God are being hauled off to the land of Shinar, is what the narrator says. Now, when the narrator uses that phrase, land of Shinar, he's doing so for a very, very specific reason. 
He wants us to remember our Bible. He wants us to go back to the book of Genesis, back to Genesis chapter 11, where we read of a certain people settling in the land of Shinar in defiance of God, and they seek to do what? Build the Tower of Babel. It was these people in Genesis chapter 11 who said, this is going to be our model. This is what we're going to be about. Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So right from the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, we are reminded that Babylon is a place which is completely opposed to God and all that he stands for. That's what the narrator wants us to see. Going from Jerusalem to Babylon wasn't going from like Jerusalem 1.0 to an upgraded Jerusalem 2.0. Babylon is the antithesis to everything that Jerusalem and the Lord God stands for, and he wants us to see that. To be in Babylon, to be among a people who are proud and defiant, enemies of God and enemies of his people. But here at the beginning of Daniel stands Babylon with what seems to be the upper hand over God and his people. But notice in verse 2 that what the narrator says, The Lord God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So here we see that the Lord God, He is the one who is sovereign. He's sovereign even over the setting up and the tearing down of kings and kingdoms. Now, a modern historian might look at this instance and say that Judah fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar because they, man, Babylon was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. So Judah was weak, Babylon was strong, and so they just fell to a a superior nation or a Babylonian priest would have said that the powerful gods of Babylon, they just simply overpowered the God of Israel. But our text actually gives us a different perspective on what actually was happening. Behind the scenes, quietly controlling all things is the Lord God who is directing his servant Nebuchadnezzar according to his will. See, it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It happened because he decided for it to happen, and it rolled out according to his will and according to his good pleasure. Now, the the Lord is sovereign. This is what we're supposed to see in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. He is the one who was doing this. But even in spite of the Lord being sovereign, even though he is the one handing Jehoiakim over into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, this in no way would have lessened the heartache. This in no way would have lessened the worry, would not have lessened the fear of watching your kinsmen being carried off into the exile. If you were a people living at that time in Jerusalem, watching a foreign king come and invade your country, destroy your city, defeat your king, start grabbing people and taking them away to their own country. Just because someone could have said, well, the Lord God is the one doing this, that doesn't mean that kills the emotion in the heart of, but this actually hurts a little. Like, I'm fearful. I'm worried. I don't know what this means. I'm scared for what's going to happen in the days ahead. 
And see, it's just not hard to put ourselves into these emotional shoes that the people of God would have been feeling here in these first couple of verses. It would have been something along the lines of this, like if in the days ahead we hear that North Korea has plans to come and invade our country, and Kim Jong-un of North Korea is going to lay siege to our capital city, Washington, D.C. He comes and he's successful. He lays siege to it. He destroys the city. He beats our president. He crushes our military. Then he heads over into Kentucky. He breaks into Fort Knox, empties out the treasury of Fort Knox, hauling back our president, hauling back our treasury, and then systematic going throughout our country and saying, you are the brightest and the best youth in the nation. I'm going to haul you off. I'm going to take you away. I'm going to bring you to North Korea, and I'm going to systematically reprogram you to become Koreans, no longer Americans. Like, if that were to happen to us, like we can only just imagine the kind of thoughts that we would be thinking, the types of questions that would come to mind. And for God's people, it was no different. I'm sure they had questions like, as they're watching the backs of these youth being carried away in chains to a nation far away, opposed to the things of Yahweh, never to see them again, they were having questions like, how are these youth going to react in Babylon? Like, what will they do when they arrive in this new home of theirs? Are they going to remain faithful to God? Are they going to remain faithful to the laws of our Lord? Will they stand strong and prevail in all that they have been taught? Or are they going to capitulate and buckle under the pressure to forsake God and to go the way of the Babylonian? And as we'll see, these fears were not unfounded. These exiles are going to be taken away in order to be reprogrammed for Babylon. And that's what you see in verses 3 and 4. It says, The king then commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, let's start the exile program here. Let's fire it up. Grab some of the best. We want youths. We want people who are smart, who can learn. They need to be of the noble families. They need to be of the royal families. They need to be of good appearance. They need to be skillful in wisdom. They need to be endowed with knowledge. They need to be able to understand learning. They need to be competent. It stands in the king's palace. And ultimately, what we're going to do is teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. These exiles were going to go through a complete and total retransformation. They were going to be reprogrammed for the services of Babylon. Because see, Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. He knew that one of the surest ways to suppress exiles was to reprogram to become for them to reprogram to them to become Babylonian in everything that they think, say, and do. And so the reprogramming of Daniel and his friends was to come about in several ways. First, they were to be relocated. Ashpenaz was to move some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, from Jerusalem to, to Babylon. That's reprogram step number one. Get them out of their home and move them geographically to a new location. Second, they were to be re-educated. Ashpenaz was to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were to be educated like this for three years so that at the end of that time they could stand before the king and prove just how Babylonian they had actually become. Third, they were to be renamed so that the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. 
They were to go through a complete reworking of their identity, even down to their name. And to top it all off, they were to reorder their diet even for the king, assign them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that they drank. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar's doing this with complete purpose. All of this was a way for him to say to these four youths, listen, you totally belong to me. I know your allegiance used to be to your God in Israel while you lived in Jerusalem, but from the things you eat to the way you think about yourself with your name to where you live to how you even think, I am going to invade myself upon you in order to transform you to become everything I want you to be. Through and through, you are now going to be Babylonian. But notice what Daniel does in verse 8. Daniel resolved in light of the renaming that went on between him and his friends as the chief eunuch Ashpenaz was putting on them new names, Daniel resolved that he would not put the king's food into his body. He resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the king's drink. See, Daniel could not help being relocated. And he could not help being re-educated, and he could not help being renamed. But one area he could remain faithful to God was in resisting the reordering of his diet. And for Daniel, faithfulness to God meant refusing to defile himself with the king's food and the king's drink. So even though he found himself in an entirely godless circumstance, Daniel decidedly chose to remain faithful to God in the midst of it all. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, just think about this. We've witnessed this in our culture, and we've experienced this before. Sometimes it's just enough for someone to go from a new geographic location, from one geographic location to a new one for them to completely buckle under the things of God. We see this alone just with like high schoolers, right? You're growing up in your youth group, you're in your church, you're around people who are thinking the same, they're around people who identify the same, they're around people who go to the same geographic location at the church, then all of a sudden you're uprooted geographically. You find yourself in a new place, a new culture, a new way of thinking, a new city, a new campus, and all of a sudden what? They're just gone. Faithfulness to God has nothing to do with their way of thinking. In a sense, they, you could say they were exiled. They were lifted up out of everything that was familiar. They landed in a place that was completely foreign, and we see it all the time. They just go, they go off the deep end, completely abandoning the things of God, no longer choosing to remain faithful to God. But we don't see this with Daniel and his example. He would not defile himself. Listen, you, I can't help you hauling me away. I can't help you renaming me. I can't help you reeducating me. But one thing I can do is I can resist the reordering of the diet that you're trying to press upon me. So what does Daniel do? He goes to the chief of eunuchs. He says, I don't want to defile myself. Now notice that in verse 9, God once again gives. He's going to give for a second time. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So as God earlier gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, so now God gave Daniel favor and compassion. 
in this, what we're meant to see is that the Lord God has no limits on his sovereignty. God's control over human history extends as far away as Jerusalem and kings and kingdoms and battles. And God's sovereignty, his rule, his reign, his control, it even extends as far as Babylon to the chief eunuchs and the steward underneath him in the way that he's going to grant favor and compassion toward Daniel, toward his friends, so that they will be able to live in a way that is faithful and pleasing to God. So what we see is that when God gave Daniel favor and compassion, that Ashpenaz acts in a way that we don't quite expect. He goes the route of self-preservation. He refuses Daniel's request. That's what I love about this. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So what's the chief of the eunuchs say? He's like, listen, man, I'm scared about Nebuchadnezzar. Like, this guy's a little crazy. We're going to see this in chapter 2, just like how crazy and ruthless he can be. But Ashpenaz knows his boss, and he says, listen, if I go this route and do this, this guy's going to have my head. So Ashpenaz goes the route of self-preservation. He refuses Daniel's request, but notice that Daniel doesn't throw a religious hissy fit. He doesn't take to Facebook and go, well, how religiously insensitive is the kingdom of Babylon? How dare they not, not accommodate me and my rights and my rah, rah, and just go, you know. No, what he doesn't do is just fold in on himself, buckle in, and throw a religious hissy fit. He doesn't curl up and cry. Instead, we see that his resolve to not defile himself actually leads him to look around for the next possible step to take. Okay, God's granting favor and compassion. Ashpenaz, no go. Okay, who else can we go to to get this done? Well, let's go to the steward. So Daniel goes to the steward. He offers up a 10-day test. Let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink. And in this matter, the steward actually listened to them and tested them for 10 days. And in the end, what we see is that not only was Daniel's request met with the favor and compassion of God, but further we see that this request was met with the giving of a miracle from God. For at the end of 10 days... It was seen that they, Daniel and the three, were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food so that the steward took away their food and the wine they were drinking and they gave them vegetables. See, what we often do is read this and go, well, yeah, man, of course, man, water and vegetables. But it'd be great. No, man, like if you just start eating waters and vegetables, like you don't beef up, man. You don't turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger by just eating veggies and water. What you do is like you start shriveling down, man. You start getting all thin and and wispy, and that's why Ashpenaz is like, I, I, I need to make sure you look like fat and flesh and healthy and strong, and so if I go this route, this is not going to go good for me. But notice that God, in his giving of favor and compassion to his friends, actually gives the miracle of they ate veggies and water, and yet come out looking more healthy and robust and fatter and flesh than the ones who are drinking the wine of the king and eating the king's food. This is flat out meant to be seen as a miracle from God. Daniel and his friends were supposed to look in the mirror every day because it says here that the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables for the, the course of three years. So every day they looked in the mirror and saw the fact like, like bro, like all I'm doing is like drinking water and like I'm eating carrots. But like I'm more healthy and fit than these folk over here. Every day of looking in the mirror was meant to be a reflection back that God is in the midst of this, even though we're here in exile. 
His hand is not off of me. This was meant to encourage him. This was meant to comfort these four youths that, yes, God is in control even while we're in exile, even while we're in a place that is just so antithetical to everything that stands for God. Now, when we read about the favor and compassion given to Daniel, what we're meant to do is be blown away by the sheer magnitude of God's sustaining grace shown to his faithful servants. God's grace is the undertow of this whole passage, and it's God's grace we see on display one last time in the closing verses of chapter 1. Look at verse 17. The narrator goes on and says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. See, in these verses, we witness the four youths ushered into the service of Babylon. God's grace, God's favor, God's compassion doesn't all of a sudden magically matrix them out of Babylon into a place where they'd like to have been, back home with their family, where God is worshipped, the temple, the city of God, Jerusalem. God's grace and favor doesn't equip them in that way, magically relocating them, but what God's grace and favor does, it actually equips them to live in a world that is not their own. It equips them to live as exiles, to encourage them and bring comfort to them. And here for the third time in chapter 1, verse 17, the narrator writes, God gave. God gave Judah into the hand of Babylon, verse 2. God gave Daniel the favor and compassion of the chief eunuch, verse 9. And now God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. But it was Daniel who received the additional gift of understanding in all visions and dreams, which is going to become very important for chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 4, chapter 8 through 12. And so from this point, at the end of these three years, Ashpenaz brings them before Nebuchadnezzar, and every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And not only were they found ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, but they even outlasted the kingdom of Babylon itself. For, verse 21, closes up the chapter by saying Daniel was there into the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus was the first king of Persia, the kingdom that came in and shut down the Babylonians in the year 539 B.C. So who is the one who outlasts even the six kings of the Babylonian empire? Daniel. God's grace and favor was on him. God was giving knowledge, wisdom, understanding. God's grace was sustaining him, and it actually sustains him to outlast the kingdom of men as he is giving himself completely over to the king of kings and his kingdom. Now, as the story ends in Daniel chapter 1, we're, we're rightly to expect great things from Daniel. Again, it's a prologue. He's setting up a lot of stuff here. The ability to have skill, wisdom, understanding, to interpret dreams and visions, that's going to inform how we read the rest of the book that's going to come. When we read Daniel 1 and come to the end, it's like, man, like this is going to be some good stuff. We're going to see some great things from Daniel. And as we read on, we're not going to be disappointed. But remember, 
the reason the narrator recorded this episode in the life of Daniel was to do two things. It was to bring comfort to God's people who had been hauled off into exile. That was one of the purposes of writing Daniel chapter 1. The other purpose was to encourage them to remain faithful to God while in exile. So if you were an Israelite living in exile, you would read Daniel chapter 1 and you would see this message. Listen, I'm meant to take comfort even though I'm living in exile. In spite of all appearances, God has not been conquered by the Babylonian gods. He is the one who is reigning and in complete control right now of this situation. It would say to them, be encouraged while you're in exile. God guides, God protects, God saves his people And he did so by entering into human history and giving them what they need even when they are in exile. And when you and I read Daniel chapter 1, we are to be encouraged and comforted in the exact same way. For just as the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and just as God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs, and just as God gave learning and skill, so in the fullness of time, God gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, you and I are not suffering from the kind of persecution and physical exile that the Israelites face. We're not in that situation. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we do suffer the consequences of living east of Eden. We suffer the consequences of living in the fall. We suffer the consequences of a world that is tainted and ruined and destroyed and in bondage to to sin. We struggle with thorns and thistles. We struggle with earthquakes and tornadoes. We suffer from the enmity of Satan. We suffer from broken relationships. We suffer from pain. We suffer from sickness, and we suffer from death. That's what it looks like to look around and go like, man, like I'm in exile. Like I'm not really this. Like this isn't my home. My citizenship is in heaven, and I'm awaiting for the king, Christ himself, to come back, and I'm longing for the day. I don't want to bury roots here in this world because this world is just simply not my home. I truly am a sojourner. I truly am an exile in Christ. And so Daniel 1 says to us, as you're walking out your days amongst thorns and thistles and earthquakes and broken relationships and pain and sickness and death, it is good and right for us to look to the one whom Christ gave, to set our, to the one whom God gave, to set our gaze on Christ, to set our faith on him, the one God gave up for us so that we might live through him. Daniel 1 says, lift your eyes to the one whom God gave. Take courage. Have comfort. Your sovereign Lord hasn't abandoned you here as you stand in the midst of a culture that's shifting and waning out of control towards the things of Satan, sin, and death. And for those of us here this morning, so we may not be in Christ, but we're actually outside of Christ. We don't know Jesus. We're not in a right relationship with God because we have not placed our faith or trust in Jesus to save us. You find yourselves in a place of exile. Ultimately, you suffer from your sin, which separates you from God. That is a type of exile. It's to be far from God. 
not in a relationship with him. And the answer for you is the same. Daniel 1 is meant to call you to turn your gaze to the sovereign Lord, to set your faith on Jesus Christ, the one whom God gave for us all so that you might be able to live through him. Your exile in sin can go from exile to being brought back to the promised land, so to speak, through Jesus Christ, our King, who leads us back to the right relationship with God that we all desperately need. And so this morning, as we we wrap up Daniel chapter 1, it's just to encourage you to think, so how am I I to think about Daniel chapter 1? I think it just really boils down to this. If you are in Christ, and in one sense, exile has been um, taken away. Your separation from God is no longer there. But you might be looking around going, like, how do I just live out these days in the work? How do I live out these days in play? Like, I see everything going far away. I think what we're meant to do is to look to Daniel and not set our hope on Daniel, but we're to look to Daniel and his God and set our hope on him. The Lord God sovereignly reigns, and He is in control, faithfully guiding His people. Take heart, have hope, be encouraged. It is possible for you to live and walk in such a way, faithful to God in these days, despite the circumstances which are raging against you in every avenue and aspect of our culture. If you find yourself here and you do not know Jesus, then the call for you would be this, know that your exile could end this morning. You could be brought into a relationship with God the Father because God has sovereignly given the one, Jesus Christ himself, to die on the cross, to be buried in the ground, to be there for three days, to resurrect from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death, showing that he's the one who has the authority to reconcile us back to the Father. And it's good and right for you to respond to the one whom God has given. Let's pray.